1 Kings chapter 17. While you're turning, I'd just like to say thank you, Pastor Wilkerson and uh, all of the staff members that have made my stay here uh, so enjoyable. Thank you for the accommodations. I, I never spent a night in jail till I came here and uh, stayed over in the old federal building, and I've got prison bars. And uh, thank you for all the folks that have uh, taken care of me and transported me and fed me, and uh, it's been a wonderful time for me. I don't know if it's been a wonderful time for anyone else, but I've been refreshed and encouraged. And uh, we have a few minutes together tonight, and I'd just like to share a, a simple but I think very important truth, and I hope it'll be a help to you. In First Kings chapter 17, we are seeing the nation of Israel in their darkest hour. They have had a king placed over them by the name of Ahab, and he, along with his wife Jezebel, have taken God's people into the depths of sin as no other king or queen had ever done. The Bible says there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to work wickedness. They took Baal worship, and it had always been around, but they made it the national religion. Under their reign, Bible believers were persecuted. They were hunted down. Preachers were hidden in caves, those that survived. And by the time of Elijah's ministry... There were only 7,000 people in an entire country that had stayed true to Jehovah God. It was a dark time. And in this dark time, one day, a prophet walked onto the scene, a man by the name of Elijah. We know very little about him. We know that he was a, somewhat of a rough and tough fella. The Bible describes him as a hairy man. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. We're not sure who his parents were. We're not entirely sure of what city he came from. But all of a sudden, he walked onto the pages of Scripture. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. He just marched into the king's throne room. He walked by all the security guards and, the, and the, the armed men protecting that king and somehow made his way right to the throne and pointed at his finger in the face of that evil man and had a message to him from the Lord. He pronounced that there was going to be a drought and he didn't say the specifics of how long it would be, but he let him know it was going to last for years. We know from Scripture it would last for three and one-half years. There'd be no dew, there would be no rain. Without moisture, the grass would die and the animals would have nothing to feed upon. Without rain, there would be no crops. Without crops, there would be no food. People would die, there would be famine, there would be pestilence. And God's judgment was about to fall on Ahab's wicked kingdom. In that moment, Elijah became the most famous preacher of his day. I'm sure word traveled as fast as it could that this man had walked in and confronted the king and lived to tell about it. And uh, Elijah now has a name and he is on the pages of scripture. But then just like that, God changed Elijah's course. The man who delivered the word of God to Ahab has a word of God that came to him. The Bible says, and the word of the Lord came unto him saying, get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. 
The ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. We're familiar with the story of Elijah and this place called Cherith and the ravens and all of that. When I first got sick a number of years ago, I was uh, actually listening to the Bible on CD and I came to this particular text and the Lord arrested my attention and I remember uh, getting a journal out and scribbling some notes down as quickly as I could and uh, I, I just want to share the, the result of that afternoon alone with the Lord in this particular passage of the Bible with a simple little message entitled, A Place Called Cherith. A Place Called Cherith. I want you to notice several things about this place called Cherith that is described here for us. The first one is an implied one, but it's a very important one. I want you to know, first of all, Cherith was the right place. It was the right place for Elijah to be. It wasn't the right place because it was a resort town and it had all the nice amenities that made life easy. It wasn't the right place because there was an opportunity for a great ministry there to build a great work for God because none of those things existed in this place called Cherith. Cherith was the right place for one reason and one reason only. God said, go to Cherith. It is the place that God wanted him to be. When Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 2, he found out that he was in the wrong place. God said, I want you to arise and I want you to go into a land that I will show thee of. Leave your family behind. And uh, basically, when you get there, I'll tell you that you've arrived. And, and, and Abram followed the leadership of God and he came to the land of Canaan and found out that that was the right place. Philip had a great ministry in Samaria until the Lord told him, said, I want you to arise and I want you to go south on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, which is desert. And God didn't tell him why. God didn't tell him what was awaiting for him there. And by the way, God does not owe us any answers. All we owe is God's, uh, to God is our faithful obedience. And Philip found out that even though he had a booming ministry in Samaria, it was no longer the right place. He needed to go out there in the desert. It was the right place, and that's what Cherith was. And that's something to keep in mind as the message unfolds a little bit tonight. Cherith was first and foremost the right place. Second thing I want us to understand about Cherith, Cherith was a rough place. We sometimes have the mistaken idea that if we're walking in the will of God and we're following his leadership, that everything is going to be um, nice and everything's going to be easy. It's going to be a bed of roses. And you do need to be reminded that roses have thorns. And uh, that, that's a reality of life. Uh, Cherith was one of those places. It was right where God told him to be, but it was a very rough place. Cherith was a place of isolation. When I first began to study out this, this particular text, I wanted to find out where is this brook called Cherith. So I turned in the back of my Bible to the maps, map section, and in the index, Cherith wasn't listed. I looked over the Old Testament and maps anyhow, and I could not find Cherith on any of the maps. I pulled another Bible down from the shelf. It was King James, trust me just another copy, and I pulled it down and looked in the maps there, and 
Cherith wasn't listed either. I went through six, uh, six books uh, or uh, Bibles like that, and I couldn't find Cherith. Finally, on the seventh one, I looked at a map, and it actually had a little blue squiggly line marking this, this waterway, and it had the word Cherith, but it had a question mark after it, which means that might have been where Cherith was, but we're really not sure. Cherith was a place of isolation. We know later in Elijah's story that as that drought progressed, King Ahab sent people out looking for Elijah. Elijah said, it's not going to rain until I say so. And so Ahab said, we got to get this preacher back and we got to get him to stop this drought. And, and, and they scoured the land looking everywhere and could not find Elijah. He was all by himself in this place called Cherith that no one else could find. It was a rough place. We don't do well sometimes on our own. We don't do well when we're alone sometimes. Peter denied Christ three times when he wasn't surrounded by his, his other disciples. And he was, he was with the world's crowd. And by the end of that night, he went out and wept bitterly. Isolation. You understand that for most of Joseph's life in the book of Genesis, he stood alone. He came from a dysfunctional family. Um, he, his father had four wives at the same time, and they bickered like nobody's business. He had 10 older brothers that had an evil report or a bad testimony. Those brothers hated him because his father unwisely openly showed favoritism to him. The Bible says they could not speak peaceably unto him. And when God began to speak to Joseph by, by means of those visions and dreams, and he shared that with his family, his brothers, the Bible said, hated him the more. Even his own father threw him under the bus at one point and said, shall I and your mother bow down before you? And Joseph was by himself. He had, he had no support system. And all of a sudden, he finds himself uh, thrown into a pit by those, those hateful brothers and uh, then from the pit, he goes to Potiphar's house serving as a slave. And even though he rose in the ranks and, and achieved some success, he was still a slave. He did not have his freedom. He still did not have his family. From Potiphar's house, he went to prison on a trumped-up charge. And there, even the people that he helped forgot all about that help. And we know that from the age of 17, when his story starts in Genesis 37, until the age of 30... Joseph spent his time alone. No one there saying, Joseph, it's going to be all right. Joseph, we're here to help you. It was a time of isolation for that young man. And that's what Cherith was. It was a rough place. Cherith was a place of desolation. Cherith was so far out there, there was, there was absolutely nothing around. There was no 7-Eleven, no McDonald's, no Culver's. Uh, there was no place to get groceries. It was so desolate that God had to airlift food into Elijah uh, every morning and every evening. Cherith was a rough place. Sometimes as we're serving the Lord, we find that God allows us to go through some rough seasons and some rough moments. On January the 12th, 2017, it was a Thursday morning, I took my wife to a little hospital near our home. She hadn't been feeling well for a few days, and that morning she was, she was um, not making a lot of sense as, as she talked to me in the wee hours of the morning. It started at 4.30, and so by 6 o'clock, I decided I should take her into the emergency room. 
At 11 o'clock that morning, five hours later, the doctor walked back into our room after several tests, a, a CAT scan and, and an MRI, and the doctor was crying, and he said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bish, I'm so sorry, but your wife has a tumor in the left front lobe of her, of her head, and it's called a glioblastoma. We had no idea what that meant. We had never heard the term before. And he said, there's, uh, there's an ambulance on its way that will transport your wife to a larger hospital. There's a neurosurgeon is gonna meet you there and either later today or first thing tomorrow morning, your wife is gonna have to have uh, emergency surgery. In just a matter of a few hours, we went into Cherith and our entire life and our entire world got turned around. By the way, we weren't out of the will of God. We both loved the Lord. Uh, we were both serving the Lord. We were in the place geographically that the Lord wanted us to be in. We were doing uh, to the best of our ability what God wanted us to do. But God brought a circumstance into our life that, if you will, that was, that was our cherith. That was our cherith. We Googled um, uh, on, the, on our phones when he walked out to find out about glioblastoma. And if it was the worst type of, of glioblastoma that there is, we realized the life expectancy was six months for that type of a tumor. The next day we found out after the surgery, the, the surgeon called me and surely Trina did have the worst type of uh, glioblastoma. It was high grade, it was uh, stage four cancer. He could remove about 80% of that cancer. And we were in this place called Cherith. And that is when, as the pastor spoke a moment ago, my wife said to me, she said, honey, we got to be real careful right now because our children are watching us. And I don't want our children to think that God is a bad God. Amen. And her theme for the rest of her life was God is always good. Cherith is a rough place and we all go through them. We all have our moments and our seasons, and, and mine is different than yours, and yours is different from the person next to you, but, but they're going to happen. The longer that you live, uh, you, you're going to encounter them, and probably more than once, you're going to find yourself camping out at a place called Cherith. But please remember the first point. If you're in the will of God and you love God, Cherith is still the right place. Amen. That, that pit and, and, and Potiphar's house and the prison that Joseph was in, that was a rough place, but that was right where God needed him to be. Joseph was in the center of God's will. Joseph was a godly young man, and that, that place, that as tough as it was, was still the right place for him. Elijah was in this place called Cherith. We don't know how long he stayed there. We know eventually the brook would dry up, but here's a man with no one to fellowship with, no one to pray with. And I understand he can talk to God and he can, he can fellowship with God all the time, but there was no human relationship there. And uh, that must have weighed on him. That must have gotten difficult as those days stretched by. There wasn't much to do. Uh, there was no food around. And here's God's man in the center of God's will for his life. He went exactly where God told him to go and it's a rough place. It's a rough place. But please understand, there's a third thing that we need to remember about this place called Cherith. Not only is it the right place, and not only is it a rough place, Cherith is a remarkable place. We read in our Bibles about the miracles. I often say, I hope when I get to heaven, God has a video room 
with DVDs of all the famous events in the Bible, and I can just pull one out, and I want to watch the parting of the Red Sea. I want to see what manna looked like. Uh, I want to see the feeding of the 5,000. I want to know, did the fish grow back in the hands of the, 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 the apostles as they were handing them out? There's so many things that happen in the Bible that were miraculous. I want to see the walls of Jericho come down. And we read about those things in the Bible, and sometimes we say, man, I wish I could have seen a miracle like that. That would have been an amazing thing. But have you ever stopped to realize that almost every time there's a miracle in the Bible, someone was in crisis? Someone was dying or had already died. Someone was blind. Someone was deaf. Someone was demon-possessed. Someone thought they were going to be annihilated by an Egyptian army coming behind them and a Red Sea in front of them, and panic and fear and terror filled their heart. Miracles came on the heels of grief and panic and fear. Miracles are God's response to our crises. And our problems. And when you find yourself in a place called Cherith, would you understand that God has placed you in an opportunity where you get to see God do something that you wouldn't have seen in any other way or in any other time? The Bible says that uh, God just told uh, Elijah, I've commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And it, it says, and the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening and drank of the brook. And we say, boy, isn't that nice? And that's good. But you got to really think about this for a moment. You understand that ravens don't bake bread. They can't read cookbooks. They have talons and not hands. Uh, You understand that ravens by nature, they're scavengers and they're entirely selfish creatures. We have these big black uh, crows up in, in Connecticut, and uh, you, you often see them along the highway where there's been some roadkill. You know, Bugs Bunny just got leveled by a semi or something like that, and you're going by, and there are, there are some ravens sitting there picking over what's left. And if you, if you time it just right, you might see two ravens there, and they're both fighting over the same piece of eyeball. And they're pecking at each other and and they're squabbling with each other and so forth. And one will fly away and he's got a piece of something hanging, you know, out of his beak and the other's chasing, trying to get it out. That is the nature of a raven. Do you understand that to take care of his servant, God completely transformed the nature of those creatures? Completely. Um, Here's how I think it happened. I can't prove it. This is a little bit of bishology. Okay, uh, so here's kind of how I think it may have happened. If you study the, the history of nations and times when there were famines, when there were sieges and so forth, as food dwindles down, the last place that always has food is the palace. Everybody else might be starving, but the, the king and his family and his people, they're going to have food to eat. So here's what I think happened. In those days, they would have probably cooked much of their meals outdoors because they were cooked over wood fires and so forth. So I'm seeing that at Ahab's palace in Samaria, his cooks are out in the morning getting breakfast ready for the king and the queen. And sitting up over yonder in the tree are Heckel and Jekyll and... Uh, And if you know who they are, you just told everybody how old you are. 
Heckle and Jekyll are just sitting up there and they're watching and one of them looks at the other and says, that meat's just about done. Elijah doesn't like it too, too burnt. Um, and uh, the other one say, okay, here's what we'll do. Uh, I'll swoop down and I'll get the bread and, 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 and you get that meat and we'll, we'll get out of here before they know that it's happening. And they swoop down and they take off and they bring it over to Elijah. I, I don't believe for a moment that they were bringing roadkill to him because it was against Jewish law for Jewish people to eat that which died of itself. They could not do that. And God doesn't do things by half measures. God's taking care of his servant. And so every single morning, these ravens are bringing bread and flesh to Elijah. And every single evening, they're doing the same thing. I was in Israel 23 years ago and found out that most uh, Israeli people, they eat a big breakfast and they eat a big dinner and not very much in between. God's really taking care of his servant in a difficult place and situation. Uh, it, it's marvelous how God works uh, in that. And so every day, Elijah's getting fed. I also so think it's a singular thought to, to realize God didn't send manna for Elijah like he did in the wilderness, where he would wake up in the morning and covering the ground would be this, these little white seeds, and he'd just walk around picking them up. He sent ravens. When it was breakfast time, Elijah had to look up. If you watch me walk, you'll find that most of the time I'm looking down because of the fact that I'm missing a leg. I have to be careful where I step. Uh, if I step wrongly, I can tumble down. Last night, I almost fell uh, off the platform over at the, uh, the, the Bible Institute across the way because I wasn't paying attention as I stepped down. Um, when we're looking down all the time, that's called being downcast. The psalmist said, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Um, every day, Elijah had to look, uh, look up and realize God's taking care of me one more day. Oh, look, it's dinner time and God's taking care of me again. And he did that every day for weeks and months and maybe a year or more. It was a remarkable place. And we found in, in, in our family, in our life, how good and faithful our God is, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. When my wife was diagnosed and had her surgery, immediately thereafter, she had done some research and found a cancer hospital in Tijuana, Mexico, called the Oasis of Hope Hospital. And she told me in no uncertain terms, she said, Tom, I believe God wants me to go there for these alternative treatments. And there was no talking her out of it. So I began to look into it, and I called the, the hospital to get some information, and, and, and they told me that we needed to uh, plan to be there when she was done with her chemo and radiation, which would have been about the month of May, and we had to stay for a full month. They also said, now you need to understand this, you're from the States, your insurance is probably not going to work here. We don't allow you to pay on installments, so you have to pay us in cash. Either present us a credit card or pay us in cash. Well, when, when I'm looking at all of this, on the day that Trina got sick, I had $8 in my checking account. I had no savings account. We went through that with some of my health issues and the things that we had to purchase for that. I had $8. We were living paycheck to paycheck. Our bills were paid. I'm not complaining. It's just that's the way it was. 
and they said it's going to cost $40,000. We've always had a, a principle, my wife and I, that if we had a need, we never told anybody what the need was till after God took care of it. And I realize not everybody does it that way, and that, that's fine, just God never gave us the liberty to do it any other way. And so we just decided we're going we're gonna to have to pray and see what God can do. In May of 2017, we flew first class on Delta Airlines, round-trip first-class tickets that we didn't pay for. Delta Airlines provided them for us. We flew to San Diego. They took us across the border. We spent a month at the hospital. And on the last day, the business manager walked into our room. I stayed there in the hospital with her. And uh, he was a great big muscle-bound guy named Jesus. He looked like a bouncer, but he was the business manager probably on purpose. He sat down at the table in the room, and they had the printout of every treatment that she had had. Uh, how many nights we stayed there. They fed us all three meals and so forth. And the, the bottom line, he said, your total bill is $39,587. He said, okay. And I reached in my wallet and I pulled out my debit card and I handed it to him. And he took $39,587 out of my checking account. Wasn't a credit card. I only had a $5,000 credit limit. I got to pay cash. You say, where did that come from? Ravens. Ravens. From the time we started praying about it, we started opening the mailbox and there'd be an envelope there and there'd be a $5 check from someone or there'd be a $500 from a, from a relative I'd not seen that heard that uh, Trina was sick and your church was one of the ravens that came. That's not an insult. And, and helped us out through that. There were some big, big amounts of three or four or 5,000, but most of the time it was 100 here or $20 there. And when all was said and done, the Lord provided. And the only person we ever told was Jesus. And now I get to tell everybody that's what Jesus did. You see, when you're in Cherith, if, if you'll look up, you'll find out that God's gonna take care of you. You're going to see God do wonderful things. Cherith's a remarkable place. It's a place of provision. Um, and and I'm, I'm hastening just a little bit here. It's also a place of preparation. When Elijah's time was done at Cherith, when the brook dried up, the Lord said unto him in verse number 9, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. If I was Elijah, I would be thinking wealthy widow. I would be thinking pool in the backyard and servants' quarters and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's not what it was at all. That woman was as poor as, as poor could be. When Elijah got there, he saw that little lady outside of town. The Bible said she was gathering two sticks to make a tiny little fire. She had a little bit of oil in a vessel and a little bit of flour in a barrel. And she had a little boy at home, and she was going to make one last meal for her and her son. And then she was going to watch her little boy die of starvation. And she, would, she just figured, I will follow shortly thereafter. Without missing a beat, when Elijah saw the lady, and he said, can you, hey, can you give me some water? And she said, yes, sir. And she brought him a drink. He said, can you, can you make me something to eat? And she told him the story. He didn't even, he didn't even hesitate. He said, ma'am, he said, none of us are going to starve to death. 
He said, I'm just going to tell you by the word of the Lord that as long as this drought is going on, every day you're going to go to that, that little vessel of oil and you're going to pour out a little bit more and you're going to find more flour in that barrel and you're going to make some food and you're going to eat and your son's going to eat and I'm going to eat and God's going to take care of us. You see, while he was in Cherith, he learned God will take care of you. And he understood that. And his faith was increased in that. And now he's sent forth and there's someone else in need. And he can say, let me tell you what God's going to do for you because that's the God that I serve. In the, first, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. One of Paul's famous run-on sentences, but he says, Blessed be God, who's comforted us in everything we've gone through, so that then when we come to somebody else in, a, in tribulation or trial, we can share that comfort with them and they get, to, they get the blessing of that as well. Cherith is a remarkable place, not only because you get to see God provide in ways you never dreamed of. By the way, God doesn't take care of us because we are good. He takes care of us because he's good. We serve a good God. It's a place of preparation. We went to that hospital in Mexico. The director is Dr. David Contreras. He's a born-again medical physician. The hospital was started by his parents, both born-again people in the 1960s. They've cared for 100,000 cancer patients. Every Sunday on the hospital, they have, church, they have a church service for all the people that are there. It's designed so that not only the patient goes, but they can bring one person with them, a husband, a wife, a child, a friend, and they can stay together with them on the place so nobody needs a hotel. But they invite everybody to come to the church service. It's not mandatory, but they invite them to come. When Dr. Contreras found out that I was a Baptist preacher, he asked me if I would speak at church one Sunday while I was there. In the meantime, my wife and I met a couple of individuals. We, we all had our meals together, all the people in this hospital, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner in this beautiful dining room. And uh, we met a lady from Australia by the name of Allison. Her, she was from the Western Authority. Uh, Allison had uh, cancer in several different parts of her body, and she was, of course, there for treatment. Allison had never been in a church in, in, her, in her entire life. She'd never been to a wedding, never been to a funeral. She'd never stepped inside a church. She knew nothing about the Bible. And Trina befriended her. If you knew Trina, she could make friends with anyone in the world. And befriended her and started trying to witness to her and share, share the word of God with her. There was another single lady there, and her name was Renee. Renee came from Oregon. Renee was in a wheelchair. She may have weighed 80 pounds or so. She was in the final stages of cancer. She had had multiple surgeries. She'd had uh, chemo and radiation to the point they just did not feel like she, her body could tolerate anymore. She came to Oasis of Hope as a desperate attempt to just get a few more weeks of life. Allison... And Renee, being single ladies, they placed them across the hall from each other. And Allison took it upon herself to wheel Renee to all of the meals and all around the hospital to the treatment rooms and so forth. And the, the four of us became friends. When it came to the Sunday for me to preach, my wife 
told out, talked to Allison and Renee, said, hey, there's a church service at such and such a time. They have a beautiful little chapel there. She said, my favorite preacher is going to be preaching. It's my husband. Would you come and hear him preach? I know you're going to enjoy it. And, and both ladies, to our surprise, said, yes, they would come. So that Sunday morning, I was sitting in one chair, and my wife was here, and Renee was beside her, and Allison was on the other side of Renee. I, I preached that morning for, for about 15, 20 minutes, and Dr. Contreras asked me when it came to the invitation if I would turn that over to him, because there were a number of Spanish-speaking peop people there. We were in, in Tijuana. He said, I want to make sure that everyone has understood uh, the message that you've proclaimed, and uh, for the next 10 minutes maybe 15, he gave the gospel clearer than I've ever heard it presented in my entire life. I had already sat down beside Trina and, and, and we were holding hands and just silently praying for those two dear ladies beside us. At the end of his presentation, he said, if you'd like to receive Christ as your savior, would you pray this prayer with me? And he led in what we call the sinner's prayer. And Trina and I just holding, holding on to God heard this weak, tired little voice beside Trina saying, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And on the other side of her in this beautiful Australian accent, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And those two ladies got saved. As they were praying, Trina leaned over and whispered in my ear. She said, This is why I have cancer. This is why I have cancer. And we talked about it later, and she said, if I did not have cancer, I wouldn't have come here. And I wouldn't have been there to meet these two ladies. And they probably wouldn't have come to church, and they wouldn't have gotten saved. Isn't God good? Those were her words. Monday morning, we went down for breakfast, and Allison and Renee were later than normal. And we were just sort of waiting around, and finally the door opened, and Allison came in all by herself. She didn't go to the buffet table. She just came and sat down with us, and we said, where's Renee? She said, Renee passed away at 2 o'clock this morning. She got saved at 12.15 Sunday afternoon and went to heaven 14 hours later. Ain't God good? Yes. Cherith. Understand it's the right place when you're walking with God. He's going to let you go there. It is a rough place, but if you'll trust God, you'll find it's the, it's the most remarkable place you've ever been. Father, thank you for the word of God.